Hey guys, welcome to Property Soup, where we talk everything property and property investing, property markets, all that kind of stuff, all that kind of juicy fun stuff. I'm here with my friend, John. John, how are you? I'm good, man. Uh, all that juicy fun stuff. So if you've got insomnia, just put us on right before bed and you're set to go. Yeah. You can sleep property dreams. Yeah, sleep soundly. Us. Yeah. What are we going to talk about today, John? What did the, you have the mind? best? The, the absolute best, uh, 101, the basics, uh, the good stuff. Um, and I say that's the best because for me, well, it's what I'm the most passionate about. Um, I think the first point where you start diving down the rabbit hole of investing, that's where it really becomes enjoyable when you learn that and learn what's possible. And yep. that's where you can start seeing people really to, to begin to make some really life-changing decisions, which is pretty cool. You and I, I think we, you know, as industry professionals, we kind of take this stuff uh, for granted. Just a bit. It's kind of easy to us. It's like kind of breathing, like going through these topics we're going to be covering. So today is really an episode for kind of like beginners or even people who maybe have, you know, like one property and, you know, maybe they bought a, a place to live in, they moved out and upgraded, moved into another home, and then their first home accidentally became an investment. This might be relevant for for those kind of people, but really this is more people starting out. Like they might be thinking, you know, I want to get into the property market or how does tax work? What is capital growth? How do markets work? All that kind of stuff. Just go through the basics. Like a lot of people, you know, just don't know how it works. So yeah, let's, let's do that today. No, look, I definitely remember um, feeling dumb, right? So, you know, some of the first couple of sessions in just feeling completely lost. Like what, what is everyone talking about? Uh, what are these terms? What's going on? And look, obviously, you know, we did have some pretty cool people explain it to us uh, relatively soon. So we got managed to wrap our heads around it. But I, I do remember those first couple of sessions sitting there feeling like a complete imposter, a complete moron. You know, I don't know any of this. Right? And it's, it's a pretty disheartening and disempowering feeling. It could make it feel like this is too much. I can't do this. You know, what the hell am I doing here? I actually felt the same. So, and the, the funny thing is I've been in, in, in property quite a while. I actually had my own you know, short-term rental management business. My previous business was managing around 50 to 60 Airbnbs. And yeah. so I was pretty clued up with real estate and, and help working with investors to get better returns. But when I got into residential investing in the Australian residential market and understanding that space and how deductions work and cash flow and capital growth and markets move and you know, market cycles, like it was really confusing. Even for me, I'd been in real estate for five, six years prior. It can be overwhelming getting into property investing for the first time. So yeah, I totally get where you're coming from there. You know, one of my favorite expressions, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Where do you find these expressions, John? <laughs> yeah, that one is definitely from the pub somewhere. I don't know when, don't know what that's time. Um, I have to, yeah. I'll have to bank that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the idea. We look at a subject like investing, which is huge, can seem limitless, but we're trying to get a grasp of, okay, how could I do this? What could I try to do if this is something I felt could be helpful for me? Um, that's all we're looking to do. Just get the bite-sized pieces at the start. So if you know what we're dealing with and what we're looking for, at that point, it becomes very easy to start making good decisions about what could actually be useful for you. I think that's a really good point as well. I think starting anywhere, starting anything new, it all comes down to knowledge, right? Um, knowledge is power. If you've got the knowledge, if you're educating yourself, if you're learning, eventually it'll just start kind of, kind of click and it won't be that scary anymore. 
right? So what are some key fundamentals, 101 investing for beginners? So I think the, the key questions you want to ask is what, what are the, what's the terminology everyone's using, right? So when we look at property, there's really a few key indicators on how well or how poorly an investment's doing. A simple question anyone asks themselves when they invest is, will this thing make me money or lose me money, right? Will it get me closer to what I want or further away, right? So that's pretty simple. Now, how do you actually measure that though? So that's where the, the key terms come up. So terms like yield and like capital growth, really the only way is just to measure the performance of an investment over time. So we know whether it's actually working or it isn't in very simple terms, right? Um, the other question people would ask is, how do I know if I can do this? How do I know if I can financially afford it? Um, so that's where getting at least a vague understanding of debt becomes pretty important and also just cash flow for a property. Um, whether it actually pays for itself so that you can go on living your life without funding an investment every day of the week. Okay. So how does it work? Let's say I want to understand if something's going to be a good investment. What do I need to be thinking about? Sure. So the, I guess it really comes down to a few things. So number one, will the price of this asset grow, right? So if I buy a property today for $500,000, what's it likely to be worth in five years, 10 years, 15 years time, right? So if I did want to sell the asset in the future, am I likely to see improvement in the pricing? That's what we call capital growth. Okay. That basically means, is, is the price going to go up? Yeah. Is, is, it it be... to grow? is the price likely to grow? Yeah. So if I buy it today, is it actually going to be worth more in five, 10, 15 years from now? Yep. And all the way into the future. Okay. All right. How does that work then? How do we know if something is going to go go up or not? Well, with any asset, um, it really comes down to two things, supply versus demand, right? It's it's very much that simple. If there's more people who want the thing, then there is the quantity of that thing. Its value intrinsically goes up in the market as long as they can keep on affording it. If there's way more of the thing than people who want it, well, what do you think happens to the price? Yeah. Okay. So, well, it's not going to move, right? Well, it's not going to move. It may even go down. You know, if, yeah. you have, if we have trouble actually um, selling that supply and it remains there, then naturally in order to move that supply, the vendor has no choice but to keep letting the price go down. Yep. Okay. What else do we need to know? So that's capital growth is, you know, the value of the property going up each year. Just for the listeners out there, John, what, what is the national average in Australia for capital growth? Like, so we're talking all of the best properties in the country that grow really quickly in value and all the worst properties in the country that grow very slowly in value what's the what's the median national the median so all of them the soup right so the the property yeah, the soup big, if we big property yeah. soup in yep. of australia yep <laughs> if we if we measure the bubbling of that pot over time to tie it into our branding of course why not so if we measure that over over it depends on what sort of period of time you measure it for but it's pretty much become a common public expression these days properties will double in value every 10 years mm -hmm. or thereabouts right does it have a mathematical basis in fact? Yes, it does. So if we use it as an example, the period going back to 1960, uh, over 63 years up until now, the market's averaged 7.8% um, per year capital growth, right? What that means, any asset that grows at 7.2% per year will double over a 10-year period. Right. Very simple terms. So the rule of thumb is that on average, if you hold a property for a 10-year period, it's probably going to get to somewhere around about double in value. May not be exactly that, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, but that's the rule of thumb. Okay, so that's the history of the median capital growth in Australia. How do we know it's going to keep doing that? 
simple answer is supply and demand, right? So if we look at what's happening today, we have uh, less building approvals going through this year than we have over a 10-year average. We've got more migrants coming in than ever uh, over the next couple of years. And what we've seen continuously is Australia's had about quadruple the population growth of most other developed nations, about two to two and a half times that of the US and the UK, right? And we only settle yeah, but, in a few coastal pockets. But John, interest rates are going up. Won't that affect capital growth? Aren't we due for like a, isn't the market going to crash and everything's going to go to hell and we're all going to lose their homes and that sort of stuff. Isn't that going to affect capital growth? We're all going to, we're all going to set our asses on fire, go slack jawed poopy pants overnight. Yeah, of course we're all going to die. No, is the simple answer. So look, yes, you'll see that kind of rhetoric in the media repeatedly. It's been that way since my parents got here in the eighties. It's going to be that way for the next, well, as long as there will be a media, there will be people who cried doomsday. Um, there were people saying the exact same thing at the start of COVID. The fact that immigration shutting down meant the property cycle, property market was finally going to have its crash cycle that they've been waiting for, for for 60 years. Finally, it's here, it's come. And what happened? Well, 30% of growth over the next two years. So, so no, the fundamentals are just so strong that unless something outside the scope of what I could ever envision could occur, Zombie apocalypse, nuclear holocaust, even then, I don't see that happening, to be honest. Eventually, something will happen that will, will cause it, or you know, mathematical probability says, though, but the likelihood is slim to zero any time in our lifetime. All right. What is yield? So when people talk about yield, rental yield, what is that? Let's break this down really, really, really simply. What does that mean, yield? So rental yield, what we're doing is we're measuring the rental income that property is receiving relative to its purchase price, right? So generally speaking, when people talk about rental yield, they measure it as a percentage. So mm -hmm. as an example, if I had a property that I'd purchased for $500,000 that was getting $400 per week in rental income, right? Over a 52-week year, that's about $20,800 per year in rent. Against the purchase price of that property, that equates to 4.16%, the purchase price of the property. Right, so twenty thousand eight hundred my annual rental income, um, four point one percent or thereabouts, four point two of the purchase price. So that's my yield figure. Now, why is that important? So basically, the way to calculate yield is we get the yearly income of the property. Yep. You can multiply the weeks by fifty-two, or you can just figure out what's the yearly income, and yes. you divide that by the value of the property. So why is that important? Very simply. Yeah, why, why is rental yield important? Yeah. Well, in a perfect world where we don't have very much debt, no debt, that'd be all income, right? Now, realistically, for most of us, we're taking out debt to acquire property. So the ability for the property and its own rental income to service that debt is going to determine how easily or not that we can hold it, right? So once the yield starts getting too low, um, we start getting pretty nervous about how much out-of-pocket cost it's going to take to keep this property going. If we start seeing some very healthy or even high yield, that might mean we have a, a cash flow neutral property, one that pays for itself without us needing to fund any money out-of-pocket. We might even see something cash flow positive where it pays for its debt and for its costs with right. and, and even leaves us a bit of cream on top. Right. So the rental yield is basically telling us how healthy the cash flow of the property is. Yeah. And obviously, the higher the cash flow of the property, the easier it is to hold the property. Because yep. when you hold an asset like property, 
it's going to have a lot of expenses on it. It's going to have what we call like holding costs. Yes. Right. So the higher the rental yield, that means the higher the income, and then it can cover more of the holding costs. Sometimes, like what you said, sometimes um, it might cover most of it. So you'll still have to put a little bit of money in to hold that property. Sometimes That's pretty, be, pretty pretty normal, especially in a market like this. Yeah, yeah, especially in a in a in a market where where the rates are are going up. Find a property which is neutral. So you know, let's say you've got thirty thousand dollars of expenses and your income's thirty thousand dollars per year. It kind of cancels each other out in its simplest yep. form, right? We're not going to get into tax and depreciation just yet. That would be neutral. And then let's say if you had $35,000 income and your expenses were 30,000, well then you'd have an extra $5,000 of positive cash flow, right? That's extra cash that's coming into your pocket. That's right. Money for jam. They're, they're a lot harder to find those properties today. They are it is possible to find them, but they're they're a lot harder. Yep. Right? So that's, that's right. the kind of you can have a, a a negative cash flow property, you can have a neutral, and you can have a positive cash flow property, right? So I think it's around, is it around five, in today's rates, it's around 5.5% would roughly get you 5.5 to 5.6 rental yield would get you roughly a positive, uh, a neutral cash flow property, depending on the situation. Yeah, depending on the properties. This is where rental yield as a percentage, it's, it's a good thing to understand. It's not the be all and end all because every property has its own different set of costs different council rates, different water rates, different yep. insurances, different situational costs. So you want to take those into account and really look at the net dollar position. The percentage yep. of yield, it's it's kind of like doing a, a a pulse check. It's a good number to know, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot unless you look at everything else. So it means that we start exploring further, but then we look at an actual cash flow sheet to determine whether or not we can hold the property. I just want to touch on something quickly because... It's on the mind of every single investor, whether you're a beginner or already got a few under your belt. Why is it important, especially in today's market where rates are going up, mm -hmm. why is it important to not purely be focused on rental yield or cash flow? Well, let's take a really good um, high cash flow property into account, right? Let's assume that you could put a 10% deposit down, fund a new property. Right, or an existing property, whatever the case may be. And you've got a really great positive cash flow asset that after all costs, after its loan costs, is paying you 5,000 bucks by the end of the year. Is $5,000 going to change your life? Doesn't sound like it would. Right. A really, really solid high cash flow property, you could maybe, maybe somehow get to maybe 10, 12,000 bucks, right? Depending on the level of debt you've taken out. Again, not going to change your life. You know, mm -hmm. It's m maybe going to give you a holiday if you're lucky. Right, yeah. That's about it. So, so this is where we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. That do we want extra cash flow? We can get it, of course. You know, bonus. Um, however, when we look at what builds real wealth, it's capital growth, right? You know, cash flow is important, absolutely. Right. You don't want to actually buy a property that's got a two percent rental yield or three, even three percent. Yes. Um, some people will buy that. That suits their situation. They can afford to do that. Yeah. But it's it's all well and good to say that you know I'm I'm carrying um, this you know, incredible prize. You know I've got I've got I've got a, a rugby ball that's now you know full of gold and diamonds. That's great. If you can't get to the try line, who cares? It's yeah. irrelevant, right? So if the plan isn't sustainable, if if you had a diet that required you to eat nothing but 
um, steamed broccoli and poached chicken for the next 40 years, even if it got you in the best shape possible and that you live for till 200, it's irrelevant because it's unsustainable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so any plan that you put in place, yes, it's great to have capital growth, but if we actually can't afford to hold the asset, the rate at which it will grow is completely irrelevant because you're going to have to sell it before it matures. Yeah, that's right. Because property is a long-term game, right? You've got to yeah. hold, you've got to hold it for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Don't have, don't have to hold it for 10, 15, 20 years, but look, you'll, you'll usually read the biggest rewards if you do. You, you still can look at shorter term strategies that will be, will be beneficial. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, Generally speaking, the, the more time you give an asset to mature, the more time you give yourself in the market, that's where the real intergenerational wealth is built. Yeah. So that, that's really key, right, is, is understanding that in the Australian residential property market, where you actually build the wealth and make money at the end of the day is through capital growth. Yeah. Building equity. And it's like you said, like, these days, if you could get a property that was positively cash flowed by $5,000, well, that's pretty damn good. That's phenomenal. But, but at the end of the day, like you said, is, you know, if you hold that property for 10 years and you're getting, you add that up to $50,000 in cash flow over that 10 years, yeah, that's, that's not going to enable you to quit your job and do what you want to do. Nope. Right? The wealth is built by buying something, let's say at $500,000. Yes holding it for a long period of time, holding it till it's worth, let's say a million. Yep. That's when you've made a half a million dollars in, in equity, in capital growth, especially in today's market with rates rising. It's my opinion that a lot of investors are too focused on, on yield. The fact of the matter is that if you're so focused on rental yield and cash flow, you may not actually find what you're looking for. Or you may actually be missing out on really good property because all you're focused on is that I have to have five and a half percent yield or I have to have a five percent yield. Because yeah. if, if we make money from capital growth, you also have to factor this in. That may be the best option for you right now, you know, after looking for two months or three months or six months, whatever it is, is to get into the market and hold something even with a slightly negative cash flow you've got to be willing to because otherwise you could be sitting out at the market for the what five ten years well and it's worth whole... worth really breaking down time scales right one of the challenges i've had with decision making um and where i've had real issues is i felt the pressure to make a perfect decision every time right and if you try and do that you'll make no decision because it's impossible to make a perfect decision logical when you break it down like that but most people judge themselves really harshly so when we talk about investors who become obsessed with yield, who become obsessed with having the positive cash flow now, it's because the, their worry is that you know, if I've got an asset that's costing me five, ten thousand dollars a year, I can't afford to do that forever, right? Now that could very realistically mean that they're talking about sacrificing, you know, the quality of a holiday with their kids. Uh, one of the kids doesn't make it into private school. Um, their leisure time as a parent is gone if the kids keep doing their thing. So. I get it. You know, that can be a really, really tough decision to swallow. Um, however, you know, let's you know, consider a couple of things. Is it likely that rates are going to come down the next few years? Probably, right? Is it likely that rents are going to keep going up? Also probably, right? Because the rental crisis is not going anywhere anytime soon, as we've explored in other episodes. So if we know that our cost to hold the property is going to come down as rates come down, if we know that our rental income is going to go up, 
then this season of negative cash flow is not going to last forever. It's a limited period. Now, if you can actually break it down in those terms that, okay, I've got two years worth of suck where I tighten the belt a bit, but if I do that properly, I've then got 20 years of really easily holding an asset that'll build intergenerational wealth. Now that perspective comes into place. And that's our job really to, to educate people as strategists to show someone that, okay, the, the hard thing that you're going to do now, you're not doing it forever. You're doing it for a short period of time in order to make sure the rest of your life is much easier. Yeah. Well, I think that's the other important thing is you've got to really weigh up your options. For most people that work a nine to five job, their only actual real means of creating wealth and getting out of the rat race is through property investing. Or some form of investment. And um, yep. then you've got, to, you've got to work out you know, what's going to be right for you. Most people yeah. are risk averse um, and don't want to put a huge amount of time yeah. into an asset class. So property is one of the natural choices. Let's say you want to get out of the rat race. Like, oh, look, I want to retire in 10 to 15 years from now. And you don't want to do like shares where you don't really get much leverage. You don't want to do crypto, which is considered extremely risky compared to property. <laughs> and then you've got to narrow down your options and then you've got to figure out, well, okay, if I want to change my situation in 10 to 15 years from now, so I can create um, a different kind of life for me and my family. What are my options available in front of me? Yep. And then if you narrow things down and you know that logically property is the least riskiest for me to do it, you figured that out, right? Okay, that property is the way. But then if you're purely focused on finding the perfect property, and this is what I'm getting to is like, you know, a lot of investors are purely focused on yield right now. What's going to happen is that you're going to be sitting out of the market. If you really feel property is the only way and the safest way for you to do it, well, you've, you've got to also weigh up that, hey, if I can't create a half a million dollars or a million dollars in wealth any other way, and I don't believe there's any other safer way than property, and you've got to also be willing to take that hit. You know, this is why we do cash flow analysis and everything so we can see, okay, what could you comfortably do? Because think about it like this, right? If something's going to make you, let's say, a half a million dollars in, in wealth or equity over a 10-year period, and it's costing you, let's pick a number, let's say $3,000 a year to hold that property, yep. which is, a, let's face it, that's a plane ticket, <laughs> right? Yep. That's a plane ticket going to, to Europe or something for one person. I break it out even more simply, right? So, you know, this is constant in my cash flow analysis when I'm walking you know, first-time investors through. Let's think of it this way. Let's even assume a property costs you 10,000 bucks a year to hold. Probably won't, but let's assume it does, right? That's 200 bucks a week. Now, let's assume this property you've acquired is $600,000 worth of value. Now, if I told you it was an ATM around the corner from your house and you could stick 200 bucks a week in that ATM, right? You could do that for the next 10 years and you knew that at the end of 10 years, you could pull out $600,000. Would that be a dumb idea? No. I mean, you probably asked me where the, where the F is that ATM, right? You stick in 60, you get back 600. Exactly right. Is it worth paying, let's say, five or $10,000 a year for something that's going to give you back a half a million or $600,000? In simple terms, yes. Uh, but also, you're probably not going to have to, to do that because, again, you know, we, we work out worst-case scenario numbers. Um, it's probably going to cost you a hell of a lot less to actually hold a property over that period of time. Right. Um, but, it, but even on the crappiest numbers possible, it still makes sense. Um, if we just kind of if we just kind of summarize those two main points is like if you're 
getting into property investing it's kind of new to you you don't really know how it works there's the two things you got to think about a capital growth buying in an area where it's there's a big demand for property Mm -hmm. but the values are likely to increase and you've got to choose the right asset as well right choose the right area choose the right type of asset so that's how you you make money through capital growth but you also need cash flow or a healthy rental yield so that you can actually hold that property for a long period of time so you can actually make the money. But at the same time, yield shouldn't be your only focus because if you're purely focusing on yield, you might actually miss out on getting into the market and making that that money through the capital growth. All right, let's let's just touch on on leverage. Why not, let's say, if I've got hundred thousand dollars john why not just put that in the share market how does shares work versus leverage through property what is, how does that work sure look you absolutely could uh but again caveat we're not financial advisors seek the correct financial advice before making choices for your own situation um so let's let's imagine you you did decide to stick this 100k um into an index fund or a share portfolio of some kind and you're getting a, a 10 percent return pretty good so if you're getting a 10 percent return compounding year after year so you put in a hundred thousand dollars yep into the share market you're getting a 10 percent return which sounds pretty good at the end of the 10 years what is your hundred thousand dollars worth your hundred thousand dollars has turned into two hundred and fifty nine thousand three hundred and seventy four dollars that's that's great so you know you i've made money if that was me i've put money into the share market how much money have I made? What's my profit? Call it one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, give or take, right? So one hundred sixty thousand. This is the joy of compounding growth because the the rate of growth that you have doesn't care about how much money is there. That whole pool of funds that you've grown, it keeps growing and growing and growing year after year, right? So obviously that is an average figure. Not every year is going to do the same thing, but you get the gist of it. So that's what happens if, if we just invest our cash into an asset. So how how do we compare that to property where you can get leverage? Sure. So let's imagine you've taken that same $100,000 and you've then gone to purchase a property. So you'll have your property deposit. The bank will want 10% down in order to acquire that property. You'll then have costs. So things like stamp duty, legal costs and conveyancing, building inspection, uh, lender's mortgage insurance. If you've gotten a property, um, with a with 10% down and taking a 90% loan, right? So as a rule of thumb, if you've got 100K to put in, you can probably pick up a $600,000 property in most states. So let's assume you've now turned that $100,000 into a 600K asset, right? With an, with debt over, over 90% of that asset's value. So 540K loan, right? So that's the difference we've got. Now, even at half the growth rate. So let's say this property is slightly below average and it's only growing at 5% per year. The difference, because we're getting 5% on our 600K, right? That's the original original amount that's growing. So even though we're getting a lower rate of growth, the fact that it's a bigger asset means that come year 10, that $600,000 property is now worth $977,000. We'll call it a million for our numbers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Even at half the rate of growth, you've seen a significantly higher return, $400,000 versus 
versus $160,000. That specific example with the share market, you're getting a 10% return, okay, on your $100,000. However, in the property market, you're getting a 5% return, it's an example. And that's an underperform. we would consider that an underperforming asset. Yeah, well, there's yeah. nothing special about it. Yeah, so 5% return, which is half of what you're getting in shares, correct? Yep. The difference is that that 5% return, you're not getting that on the $100,000 that you put into the property as a deposit. You're getting a 5% return on the total value of the property or the asset. So you're getting 5% right. return on the $600,000. And as that $600,000 grows, what was it, John? It, it's, it ends up being worth around a million dollars by yeah. year. Yeah, 977,000. So call it a million for round yeah. numbers. And that know, is the... a really underperforming property. So the difference is you made 160,000 in shares, $400,000 on a property in that same example by through leverage. This is where the, you know, for all the math nerds out there, Archimedes had, the, of course, the famous quote, give me a, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum and I will move the world. So leverage in very simple terms is the ability for you to get more output. So your input, the same yeah. input, right? That same hundred thousand um, dollars by having an asset that, that has a bigger base to start with, you end up with a bigger output. Very simple. Okay. We've covered rental yield. We've covered capital growth and we've covered leverage. Those are some pretty good basics to do with property investing. What else? Is there anything else that we, we, we missed or should we leave that for part two of property investing 101? Definitely do it for part two. So look, it's, it's all well and good to know these abstract terms and what they roughly mean. Um, we then start getting into, okay, how do I actually work out if something's right for me or not? You know, what are the things I should look for? Um, what are some of the warning signs? What are some of the, the green lights? What are some of the things that should encourage me? Okay, John, so we've covered capital growth. That's how you make money in residential property in Australia. But you need to have a good rental yield so that you can actually hold that property. Making money in property is not how many properties you buy or what's the value. It's actually how long can you hold the property. Yes. In order to hold it, you've got to have a healthy rental yield. Yep. Um, the higher, the better, but just because it's negative or neutral doesn't mean it's a bad property. So don't yep. surely focus on, on rental yield. And the last thing is leverage, you know, instead of getting uh, a 5% return on a hundred thousand dollars, getting into property allows you to get the leverage where you can take a hundred thousand dollars and get a, a, an asset worth much more but you're getting 5%, not on the $100,000 that you put in, but you're getting the 5% on the total value of the asset, which you now control. Yes. In the words of Alex Ormosi, getting as much output as possible from the same right. input. Right. So hopefully that cleared things up for a few people. If Hopefully you learned something new. If there is something that you would like to ask us, that you would like us to speak about, please write to us, send us a message. We'd be happy to kind of go through that. And we'll continue this series of Property Investing 101. Part two will be coming soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Right. Yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Yep. Bye -bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks, see you next time, guys.